Welcome to the herd and thanks for listening. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating and follow and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. I'm very pleased today to be joined by Dr. Alan Franz Lubers, all the way from North Carolina. So we're reaching across the country once again. Alan, welcome. Well, thank you, Peter. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to this conversation, learn a little bit more about what you've been doing. Um, so you're a USDA professor, North Carolina State University, is that correct? That's one way to, to uh, name it. Uh, yes, I work for the USDA Agriculture Research Service in, in Raleigh and on the campus of North Carolina State University. So I do, I do have an appointment as USDA professor in the Department of Crop and Soil Science. And your soil ecology and management is your specialty? That's correct. Yeah, I've uh, studied soil since, um, gosh, since 19... Well, I guess 1985 when I uh, joined a, a lab in, in Lincoln, Nebraska, where I got my master's degree and bachelor's degree. And uh, I started working for a soil microbiologist and uh, got my interest there in soils and got, got a degree in, hort in uh, horticulture first, then agronomy, and then eventually soil science. Okay. And, and before, you, before you moved to Raleigh, you were at a research station in Watkinsville, Georgia, right? That's correct. Yeah. Uh, and down there in the southern Piedmont. Um, Raleigh is also in, in, in at the border of the Piedmont region. But uh, yes, in, in uh, North Georgia uh, with USDA for 17 and a half years or so. Yeah. Soil ecology. So, um, well, uh, one step at a time. So if you had 30 seconds or so to introduce yourself beyond what you've already said, like imagine we met at a social party. Remember them? We, we used to uh -huh. get together, you know, out at, sorry. And uh, how would you introduce yourself? Yeah, well, I would just say that I'm uh, a country boy that grew, grew up in the middle part of the, of, of the, of the United States, and uh, was very fortunate to to be able to get an education. Uh, one, one of the first in my well, the first in my family to to get a higher education, and I just uh, feel like I would be considered a, a soil nerd. You know, somebody that really focuses on soil. But I I appreciate all of agriculture, and I really do like agriculture. And I would. I've um, like to say that I'm I'm really an agronomist as as well, more generalist than than a specialist. Okay. Um, so, did you grow? You said middle of the country. Were you growing up on a farm or just no? A rural I, did, I did not. I, I did not grow up on a farm, but it was a small community. It could have been a. It could be the size of some farms these days. <laughs> <laughs> it was that small. Uh, it was a very small community, and it was on the edge of that community. So I lived next to the pasture, and we would sometimes, you know, have uh, put up our tent in the pasture as well. <laughs> careful you want to be sh careful where you put the tent in the pasture and sure make yep. sure the pasture isn't occupied at the time uh, <laughs> uh, so soil science what was it that that first got you interested in that topic uh, it's, uh, I'm not sure, you know, probably in childhood, you know, uh, eating the, the soil that uh, the dirt that we called it at the time, you know, to uh, uh, playing around. Um, I think that in general, it was because of my grandparents, both sets of my grandparents farmed, they were, they were farmers, and they worked land and did well for themselves, uh, you know, hard work uh, from from nothing into something. And so I saw that how, how hard work can get you somewhere, but also I saw that the erosion issues in, in the state of Nebraska, that they were, they were everywhere. It not only uh, had water erosion uh, with excessive precipitation in the summertime, in the springtime, as well as wind erosion at the fence lines. I saw uh, uh, dirt mounds uh, on the edges of the fences, you know, that those fences created uh, wind barriers. And then, uh, so I saw that, this erosion and I thought this was, you know, such a tragedy. How could we 
let our soils erode. And so it just uh, fed uh, my desire to take care of the land. I think uh, environmental ethic is was deeply embedded because of my grandparents being farmers. Hmm. And these farms would have been mixed farms at that point, or had they already specialized as commodity or a livestock? Well, my mother's uh, father uh, and and her, her, her mother, they, they, they certainly they were mixed uh, farming and uh, they had their own farm. And it, yes, it was definitely a, a mixed uh, crop and livestock farming. But of course, it was is, is in Nebraska. So, you know, there there would be uh, would have been more grain production than than forages. But they did have cattle and, and swine as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And sheep. Mm-hmm. Then ducks uh, and, and uh, uh, chickens, of course, and, and lots of other things, too, I'm sure. Indeed. Um, so your research programs um, have been, there, there was two short descriptions or projects that you're involved with, analysis of soil biological activity, and then another strategies to support resilient agricultural systems of the southeastern U.S. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about soil biological activity. I I think people are becoming more and more aware of the micro and macro biology in the soil. But certainly when I went through my agronomic training, uh, there was soil microbiology, obviously, but it wasn't really as big a point of interest then. I mean, we talked about organic matter, but we didn't really talk about the biological functioning within the soil. So, um, and and as a as a soil ecologist, I would have to imagine that that's been an area of interest for you for a lot longer than maybe most people who are familiar with the topic. Sure, as as I mentioned, you know, I, I started off in uh, working as a technician in in a soil microbiology lab at the University of Nebraska. And uh, so that gave me the the insight, you know, to really try to understand what's going on in soil. And I certainly have I've, I've learned a lot since then. But uh, one of the projects that uh, was in the lab at the time was uh, trying to understand the rotation effect. Why do certain crops in rotation lead to better performance of those crops rather than monoculture? So monoculture corn in this case would, would, was the case that we were comparing. And why, why would we actually see a better yield response? And many of the hypotheses at the time were that they were due to the microorganisms in soil trying, uh, that, that led to changes in root architecture as well as communities in the, in the soil that, that uh, gave better nutrition to the plants. And so the, I, I guess, uh, you know, we did publish the paper on it and, and I, I actually, it gave me a, a good deal of confidence at the time because I would say that I was able to help even as a, as a somewhat uh, recent graduate of undergraduate, uh, of a gra- undergraduate program and not in soil science, but that um, we, we fumigated the soil to be able to kill the organisms there and it, it's it's an interesting aspect because that's a technique we use experimentally so that we can understand what is the actual role of those beneficial organisms in soil. So we we kill off the organisms and then then we we saw this um, change in microbial community that occurred in in the monoculture corn as well as the rotated corn with with forages in the rotation, and so by eliminating those um, my, my, those beneficial organisms we could understand that actually it was the beneficial organisms that really were part of the system that led to better productivity or more resilient uh, production capacity. And so we we use this same technique in determining microbial biomass in soil. So we want to know the the actual mass of organisms, in, in this case, bacteria and fungi, primarily actinomycetes, archaea, that, that we, we want to know the mass of them. We actually try to, we, we kill them. And then by killing them, some organisms uh, are able to survive and they consume those that are dead. And so by that increased activity in the soil from that, that killing action, we can actually determine, well, how much, how, how many organ, how much of a mass did we actually kill? 
And so that's that's one of the technique, techniques we use. It's unfortunate that we have to do that, but you know there are many uh, worse things that we do to the soil than, than uh, a few grams of soil that, uh, that we uh, kill. Hmm. So you said uh, monoculture, but you were saying corn after corn after corn, right? As opposed to some people think that you know planting many different plants at the same time in the same field. Um, so is what is is there a technical definition for monoculture that might be different than the popular? I see. Yeah. So you've raised a, a, a key point. We should have a good definition for that. So in this case, the monoculture, of course, when we have the the, the culture of a of a typical grain crop, it is almost always uh, one species in the field at a time. Now, it doesn't have to be, but that's 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 what our typical grain production systems are these days. Um, and so in this case, monoculture corn means corn in in uh, 2020. To corn in 2021, corn in 2022, and so on. Whereas the, the rotation would be in time. So this year it may be corn, next year it may be oat or alfalfa, a mixture. And so, it could, you know, there are typically in forages, there would be mixtures of, of polycultures. But in, in grain crops, it's typically monoculture in, within a season. Uh, someone I remember in northern Alberta telling me that they had to tell people that canola snow, canola snow <laughs> is not a rotation. <laughs> um, right. So, so you said the the time. So, and I from reviewing quickly some of the papers, temporal, but you also mentioned spatial. So mm -hmm. there's, and, and we may be drifting too far away from the topic and getting into the next topic, which is the, the intercropping or livestock cropping systems. But um, it, it may be possible for certain agricultural activities to have, for example, trees with a turf of some kind, a forage stand of some kind in between. And, and so that would be more spatial as opposed to going corn then to alfalfa for a couple of years and then back to corn, which would be temporal. Is that right? Sure. That's, that's absolutely right. Yes, it could be, you know, that, that you have an alley cropping system where you actually have, say, a, a, a pure stand of corn and then you have trees. So the, in a field, you might have 13 lines, lines of trees, and you have then say 12 or, or 13 um, area alleys of corn production. And that would be spatially distributed, of course, but um, it could be even finer than that too. Uh, in the When I was in my, uh, my uh, uh, master's program at the University of Nebraska, I'd just call out uh, Dr. Chuck Francis. Uh, Charles Francis was, was my mentor and he taught me a lot. And I wanted to mention his name here. Mm -hmm. Uh, he um, introduced me to many ideas about, say, as uh, strip cropping. You could have corn and soybeans in the same field, and the, the beneficial effect on the edges of those. So it might be six rows of soybeans, six rows of corn, and you might repeat that hundreds of times in the same field. And so that would be a spatially distributed pattern as well. And of course, for most farming systems today, the the, the options are going to well. I don't know which comes first: equipment size, and you know, six mm -hmm. rows of soybeans is probably smaller than most people are going to be handling. Um, but something similar could be incorporated. So the let's talk organic matter, uh, and and people think you know, carbon sequestration, organic matter, but organic matter, while it's majority carbon, it's different forms, right? Yeah, that, that, that's right. I mean, organic matter is, is really a, a large assemblage of, of various molecular compounds. Some, some molecules are small, some are, are very large. And so um, organic matter is just a, a simple term. And we, when we measure organic matter, we can actually measure organic matter. That's through a technique of we actually burn off the, the organic matter. And so we can determine the mass that we, we lose. Oftentimes though, we measure carbon because the carbon in, in organic matter is generally the, well, it is the, the, the largest component of organic matter. So uh, organic matter is gonna be composed of a variety of, of elements, but 
majority, 58% will be carbon. And uh, roughly about 5% will be nitrogen. And then of course you have your hydrogen and oxygen elements as well. And, and some of that is going to be larger material. Uh, I'm thinking old roots, um, plant debris that's been incorporated one way or another. Um, and then it's going to go all the way down until we get to exudates from roots, for example, or other biological activity. So from mm -hmm. the molecular up to the, the macro scale, correct? Yes, that's right. So we, we and we often, uh, well, we in our lab, we, we do that. We actually measure the particulate organic matter, the roots or the residues that actually we physically can remove from the soil. Uh, we don't, and the way we physically do it is, is we pass it over a screen. So if we use a certain mesh size, and in, in this case, we actually determine the sand sized material. So although it's called particulate organic matter, it is really truly sand sized organic matter. Mm -hmm. And because we, we uh, uh, operationally define it that way. But the soluble parts are, are and, and microorganisms consume those particular, or that particular organic matter. And eventually those decompose into smaller and smaller subunits. And then they're, they're, they're certainly incorporated into the stable organic matter, or they can be respired as, as food sources by those organisms. And it's respired as CO2 back into the atmosphere. CO2 into the atmosphere from the soil is normal. Biological activity, which produces CO2 from the soil, is, is a natural process. It is, is something that we really cannot inhibit greatly. We, we can try with various management strategies, and that's, that should be our goal. We should minimize the amount of CO2 returning back to the atmosphere, but it, it will almost always have a large proportion back to the atmosphere. Yeah, well, and then I, I might uh, just follow up to say that the, the soluble components, of course, those are more, much more readily uh, decomposable by the organisms. That's, the, 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 that's the, the plate of food for the organisms. They, the, those soil organisms are much, very much like us as people. They, are, they, need to, they need to have food to survive. The more food they have, if they're athletes, the more they can do. Now they they I don't know for sure if they can become obese, but I, I believe that they 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 basically need that food to be to be able to do the work that they need to do. Well, and if they get big enough, they just divide. So there's that. Yeah, that's right. Um, and and so uh, the, the the that fraction of the organic matter is energy. We they also need a source of nitrogen to support their cell building and division um, and other nutrients that they have to have access to. Um, so soil respiration might be an, uh, an idea. I don't know if technically I'm correct, but what happens when soils become either waterlogged or too compacted or they're somehow limited by a crust yeah. and and oxygen might get limiting what happens then in those environments about this carbon cycling right great question of course you know they, they like like us i mean they they those organisms need a balance of of their environmental conditions you know they need a suitable temperature they need wa water and air. So by, by having compacted soil, we're forcing the soil to lose its porosity, the, the spaces between the particles of soil. And those spaces between the particles of soil is where the air can, can occupy or where water can occupy. And so compacted soil often leads to less of that uh, pore space that is available, first of all, but also that that if it rains, then that then that that the water is going to occupy more of that space, and then the organisms don't have enough oxygen to be able to to respond to function, and because they're respiring, and so the the that air, atmospheric space is filled with carbon dioxide rather than re, re, replenished with oxygen. Now it, it's just a slower process, and so that's why. Um, very waterlogged type of soils tend to uh, respire slower and all, all and also of course going to uh, anaerobic uh, respiration and it yields uh, less um, 
less organic. Well, it's going to yield more organic matter, but less respiration itself, less mm -hmm. CO2. And, and maybe methane emission as a result, um, similar sort of thing as what happens in the rumen when oxygen is limiting? That's correct. That, that's correct. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be just from uh, excess water. Excess water does lead to methane production in soil, but it, it can be also extremely high uh, respiration, filling those pore spaces with mm -hmm. CO2, with carbon dioxide, rather than replenishing with oxygen. So it, it is oftentimes due to water logging, but it, it can be also just high biological activity as well. Um, so I'm reaching way back into the volatile memory here, and soils were sand, silt, clay, organic matter. I mean, that was sort of the approach, certainly introductory yeah. soils. Um, so, well, here's a question. What percent of organic matter in a grassland type of situation, you can define where that is, is going to be in the form of this microbiology? versus some other debris or soluble material? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good question, of course. And it, I think that, uh, of course, the respiratory activity is, is really, uh, uh, it, it requires time. So it's not really the, the, the um, and, and that time has to, of course, then have con environmental conditions of temperature and moisture. And so it's a little bit difficult to answer, but I can just in general say that if the optimal conditions were, were present, then approximately um, one to two percent of the organic matter that is present would be uh, biologically active. Hmm. A relatively small amount of the organic yeah. matter would, would be biologically active. That's right. Mm. But then mm. that, that, that's, that's kind of per day. And then, of course, you can, you can imagine that, okay, that, it, it, that it can consume itself eventually. But soil has a, way, a, a unique way of actually stabilizing that, uh, you know, because the, the food source is no longer the, 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 the stake there anymore. It's, mm. it's now um, created leather. And so, you know, you know, we're not going to do well on, on eating leather instead. So there's, there's that process of degradation that occurs in the food source. And, and that's probably speaking to the value of having some living plants in this soil for as long during the growing season as is possible. Great point. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, the... Some of the products, we, I, I hear phrases like soil health and I, others, and I keep, maybe it's my box and I just want to know, well, what are the measures? What are the metrics that somebody could go out into their field and say, how am I doing? Um, mm -hmm. is, is that, is that a naive, unrealistic kind of thought? Are we working towards those sorts of things so that producers could evaluate progress towards a goal? Um, or do we already have those sorts of things? Yeah, I think there's, uh, it's, a, it's a really good question because that's the, in, the, in the end, that's what we want to see is that, that we have information that uh, landowners, that land managers can use to, to see the improvement that they, they might be making or to see the harm that they're trying, that, that they might be making. And so, yes, there are a, a number of different indicators. We call them indicators because we're not necessarily measuring the actual function of, of the soil, but that's what we really want to measure is the function of the soil. What do we want from the soil? Well, we want it to, to be able to stabilize the plant community so that it uh, is, is has a good architecture that it doesn't uh, subside so that, you know, that all of a sudden we have holes in the, in the ground, you know, and we can't uh, traverse the, the land. So we want it to be stable. We want it to have, um, uh, to be able to store water. We want it to be able to cycle water when, like when rainfall occurs, we want water to go into the soil and we want it to, to leave it, you know, allow it to get to the roots. We want to, is, you know, in a general sense, we want to have plant productivity, um, but we also want to have good environmental quality. And soils is at that interface of controlling productivity and environmental quality. 
So some of the environmental equality aspects are, of course, that the greenhouse gas emissions, soil regulates how much greenhouse gas is essentially emitted from soil. We have uh, carbon dioxide emitted from soil through respiration. We have nitrous oxide emitted from soil because of the high availability of nitrogen that we supply to, to these crops, to these forages, to, to whatever plant. It doesn't mean that we have to apply nitrogen. It's not a requirement that we have to because that organic matter as it decomposes supplies nitrogen in a mineral form to plants. So the, the, the function of the soil is really important. And those indicators that we want to be able to measure would be something like, well, is the soil too stiff to be able to actually allow roots to penetrate the soil? So we look at compaction as an indicator. Well, how do we measure compaction? Well, we don't really have great uh, measurements for it because we use uh, oftentimes a metal rod that we push into the ground and does that is it, it, it's an indicator of the firmness of the soil. But you can imagine if the soil is dry, the soil is very firm. Just try it out. Whenever the soil is dry, try to push a metal rod into the ground. Okay, you'll, you'll, you'll see that it's difficult. Uh, but when it's wet, that same soil will be uh, able to allow that rod to be penetrated easily. And so moisture is a big factor. So we have to have consistent moisture whenever we use this tool. So the tool is, and also roots don't, go through soil. They grow uh, between the soil particles, right? They go be between the aggregates. They find their way. It's rare that you find a straight root. They're often very um, circumvented. They're going around in, uh, am amongst the peds. And so that's why the tool isn't necessarily most ideal, but it, it gives us an indication. Another way that we try to measure compaction is through bulk density, the, amount, the mass of soil in a given volume. And so we use a, a coring device and we try to uh, limit the amount of disturbance. We want to cut the soil evenly. We, so basically we want to have a large enough uh, a probe that we can actually penetrate the soil. We want to know exactly the volume. We want to know exactly the mass. So we have to dry the soil, get the, the mass of the soil per volume. And so then we get an estimate of, of bulk density. I was reading some papers and the repeated reference to a a probe 15 centimeters in yeah. diameter. Um, I'm pretty sure that's mounted on something and getting pushed into the ground. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I, you know, actually, I use a probe of four centimeters inside diameter and it works pretty good. It, 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 certainly, it has to be moist soil. Um, so I was talking about indicators. That, that would be that would have been the indicator of some physical attribute of the soil. We also have attributes. So there are three main categories of, of indicators when we measure soil health. We want to uh, have the physical. We want to have the chemical. So what is the pH? What is the cation exchange capacity? What is the supplying capacity of calcium, magnesium, of uh, phosphorus, potassium, of, of nitrogen? Um, so that the, those chemical attributes. And then the biology. How are the organisms interacting with each other and supplying nitrogen primarily? Because that's how nitrogen is truly supplied in, an, in a natural system. It's through the decomposition of organic matter. And those organisms are essential for that, that decomposition process. It, it would not proceed without that, that, uh, those organisms. So those three attributes of physical, chemical, and biological. That's th those, those are the, what we try to look for, for indicators. And then, of course, there are many more, and we have a, a plethora of measurements that we could use, but I think that's, that's where we get bogged down because there are so many different types of me me measurements that we could use that we are not necessarily talking the same language, using the same terms, and, and that's maybe where a little bit of confusion occurs. So, again, the, the, the methods haven't been agreed upon, and then... Uh, even if we're talking about the same method, have the standard or the 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 procedures always been standardized? And sure. as we know from forage testing, that depending how well the 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 procedures are aligned, you can get differences in the numbers. But by that point, we may be talking about smaller differences sure. than than yeah. what you're you're mentioning. Um, you, you mentioned the release of biological nitrogen, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that we could have grazing animals that then cycle some of that and mm -hmm. sort of eliminate that 
need for decomposition of plant material to release the nitrogen, um, we, we could have urine deposition, which would be a, a, another way for that nitrogen to become available in the system. Agree, yeah. disagree? Absolutely, absolutely, yes. But I, but in 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 a lot of respect, the the majority of that transformation is occurring because of microorganisms, whether it's in us or in the rumen itself. Well, there you go. So exactly, uh, free living or or in the rumen. Um, so we are entirely dependent on these microorganisms, whether we'd like to think so or not. Yeah, um, it's a good thing maybe we don't see them so so easily. <laughs> yeah. Um, so as you've so you mentioned um, working in a laboratory in '85, and I won't say how many years it is later because I don't want to make myself think about that um, because that was only a year before I graduated. So um, have have you had some major surprises in your career or things that you look at very differently now than maybe earlier in your career? Yeah, well, actually, it, I, I'll, I'll just say that that I don't think there's anything uh, major uh, different. I, I, I think I've had some discoveries, let's say, uh, but they're not earth shattering. But I would I would like to just point out that actually in 1985, uh, when I did uh, start looking at uh, some working as a technician, I mean I, w I wasn't the investigator. Um, it, it taught me a little bit about uh, microbial uh, activity. It made me want to study microbial biomass and what the role of microorganisms in soil do. Uh, so that's what I got my PhD in is is in soil uh, biological activity and, and transformation of organic matter. I would say that that ever since I started my graduate career, and then postgraduate into at being an investigator, I've I focused a lot of my effort on carbon and nitrogen cycling, and it's it's interesting that uh, when I was working as a technician, uh, right after or during my master's program, that. I was working on nitrogen, trying to get uh, more efficient use of nitrogen. I'm not against applying fertilizer nitrogen, but I'm against applying too much. And of course, when we need nitrogen, I think you know, it's, it's reasonable to say that we should apply some additional nitrogen. It's because of the, our expectations. We need to have more from the land. That's why we, we have to apply more nitrogen. It's just a simple matter of physics in, in a lot of ways. And so... Um, I would say that that it's the the, the strange thing is that uh, I, I was conducting field trials uh, during my master's program on nitrogen, and currently I conduct field trials on nitrogen availability. I have a different perspective now than I did uh, some thirty years ago, but it's interesting that I'm using the same techniques. Hmm. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, that makes me realize that we, we don't really have so much to contribute, perhaps. No. <laughs> I, I, I would like to say that there are, there are some unique things that I, that I, that I think that I've learned. Of course, this, this soil, soil test biological activity. We're now at the point where we're actually using the word to actually associate with nitrogen fertilization. And that was, never, that was really not part of our, our, our dialogue before. And so I think people are realizing, well, the soil actually gives us something. And rather than just from the fertilizer bag or from the fertilizer truck. And so that's something that has really changed. And I think we're, we're making some progress on that. Because in the end, we have to do a better job with nitrogen application because our, our environment is being polluted tremendously. We see the evidence all around us. All of our coastal estuaries are being um, uh, degraded because of the nitrogen leakage and runoff situation. We have to do better. Well, and phosphorus would also be impacting phosphorus as well. Yeah, um, and and that gets us back to the role of forages at some point in the system to minimize water and wind erosion, which would be the phosphorus. Hopefully, making better use timing of the nitrogen in pasture forage crops. Uh, maybe a lower need for phosphor, uh, for for uh, nitrogen in pasture and forage crops than perhaps in corn or other commodities um, might be something else. Uh, I remember uh, from a conversation with uh, 
Dr. Bowden, um, he was saying that um, the, the gentleman, um, um, Dr. Burton, talked about, you know, he started his career when it was a nickel a pound nitrogen. And so they had their grass and you're going to fertilize it with nitrogen at a nickel a pound. And well, we don't have that. And in a, in a paper from way back in 2007, um, there's an interesting quote. Um, this was reconsidering integrated crop livestock systems in North America. And, and the quote is cheap resources lead to specialization which is interesting. I, I hadn't ever thought of it that way. Um, whereas restricted use of resources leads to mixing. So um, my brief exposure to people working in livestock cropping systems and, and fertilizing the system as opposed to a specific crop I find an interesting concept and some work out of Brazil. And I think you've had some interaction. So what is a, well, what is an integrated crop livestock system? What scale are we talking about? Yeah, well, I, I think that's, that's an, a good question. It's an open question because there are many options. There, there's, there's, no, there's no one answer, let's say, but it just means that, that, that the resources from a cropping system could be utilized by the livestock system. And the resources uh, from a livestock system would be, then be integrated and utilized by the cropping system. So it could be temporal in that, uh, it could be that on a field that we have a, a crop and then we might have a forage that feeds the livestock. We might have manure application to a cropland. That, that's a possibility. We might have uh, cover crops that are actually consumed by uh, ruminant animals. And they're, they're that, that same land is producing grain, either for the animal or for, for human consumption or, or a biofuel. So the, all of these... These integrations are, are probably very mixed. We could have, um, it, although it could be uh, a different kind of integration, we could have trees and, and grass, right? We, we, we would produce uh, some sort of a fiber product from the trees, and then we would produce meat uh, from, the, from, the, from the grass because the, the livestock would be consuming the grass. Alternatively, we could have crops in there. We could have vegetables. We could have fruit trees. All, all of these integrations are, are they're multi-dimensional. There, there's a possibility of, of many different op opportunities. And so I suppose, depending upon where you live, what are the environmental conditions? That's always the first part, is understanding what are the conditions that you're at, in, in so that you can um, uh, utilize those, those uh, resource conditions as appropriately as possible. I, I spent a little time in Georgia, so I'm familiar with yeah. red red soil. Um, or you, you got it right. You you were you were almost ready to say it, weren't you? Yeah, <laughs> I was. Um, uh, yes. Okay. And one of the things that I keep in mind is certainly East Coast, certainly southeastern U.S. had a hundred years more at least agriculture than when you get to Ohio or or certainly further west. And a lot of that agriculture was producing commodities like cotton or tobacco. And, and that took a tremendous toll on the soils um, so that there was massive amounts of erosion. We're, we're starting with older soils to begin with, a lot of rainfall. It, it's much warmer for much longer during the sea. All of those things affect the kind of soil that you have in place. So mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm wondering, we're, we're here, and, and you just mentioned it's very site-specific, a lot of these conversations, um, or at least region-specific. Mm -hmm. um, and what you, what you might expect from a soil organic matter response in Georgia would be different than what you would expect in, you know, upstate New York or in Brazil for that matter. Although Brazil and Georgia, I would suspect is going to be a little closer. Um, 
uh, any any thoughts along? I've had this thought, and a couple people have pushed back on me, but it seems to me like I remember that organic matter level in a soil sort of increases to some equilibrium dependent on whatever conditions in that area. And then if those conditions change, well, then maybe you could have an increase or a decrease in organic matter, but it's not going to just keep increasing indefinitely. So is, is, is your perspective that there is that sort of equilibrium established at some point or, and if sure. so, is that relevant for conversations these days? Yeah, I mean, I would just say that technically we would probably state it as, as steady state because there's there's really no true equilibrium. Mm-hmm. And and the, yes, I think, okay, so the environment matters. So uh, temp- temperature, the mean annual temperature of a location determines a, to a large extent the potential for organic matter accumulation. Uh, Hans Jenny, uh, almost 100 years ago, already established that said, you know, state, looked at it and, and found that, that soils in colder climates, like say, if you move from Texas to Oklahoma, to Nebraska, to North Dakota, to uh, Alberta, you're going to find an increase in organic matter in general, because the temperature is going down, the mean annual temperature. Now, the summer condition is, is warm enough, but it's the, it's the overall mean temperature that matters. And so the, the summertime condition is important in that it produces plant material, the carbon source that feeds the organic matter that can be produced or, or that, that resides in, or, in soil. So temperature is important. Precipitation is important as well. And, and, but that's a mixed, mixed uh, environmental condition. It can be too wet or it can be too dry. And so you can go in both directions. Um, and, and so that, uh, and then the texture of the soil matters as well. Fine textured soils, clayey soils, tend to have a greater capacity for sequestering carbon and, and building organic matter than, than coarse textured soils or sandy soils. And those coarse textured soils, it's partly because the clays are, are reactive and those clays react with the organic matter to create molecules that are more resistant. Whereas in sandy soils, there, there are no, there, there is not that uh, reactive clay material. And so organic matter tends to be more processed. It leads to lower uh, organic matter. Doesn't mean though that a sandy soil cannot accumulate organic matter. I think it's a falsehood just to say that, well, I'm, I live in Georgia and I've got uh, sandy soil. I can't build organic matter. That's not true. Management d- dictates how we, you're going to build organic matter. And so, and that's because of the steady state condition. If you, input a lot of uh, or, uh, carbon by producing a lot of plant material, that means that then there is a possibility for depositing more organic matter in soil. But if you have very low input of carbon, such as a very simple cropping system where, and tillage, of course, disturbance of the soil always matters a lot. And so, but if you say you didn't till and you had very little carbon input, say that you grew a cabbage crop and that's all you did. You just relied that I'm going to produce a cabbage crop one time per year, you know, where in fact you should be producing four different crops if you're growing cabbage, you know, in a year it, uh, sequentially. But if you grew only one cabbage crop and didn't, and you remove that cabbage, then how much carbon can really be put into the soil, right? So there's not going to be a whole lot of carbon left for the organic matter. It's give and take. If you take too much, then you're not giving much to the, to the soil. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm interested in how we can bring livestock back into these very specialized systems. Uh, I mean, just, I, I remember what it was like to have 600 pound steers on a research farm where the plant breeders were saying, I hope you have a rifle in your truck because we don't want those cows anywhere near our mm-hmm. nursery, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and people are concerned about uh, soil compaction from mm-hmm. livestock and they're concerned about weed seed from livestock in their cropping systems. Um, but it seems to me like there's more and more interest in finding a way to achieve this. 
So we, we, you, you mentioned uh, potential cropping systems, and, and some of those would be things already, like in Nebraska, grazing corn stubble after in, in the fall or winter uh, is, is one integration. It's probably, it, it, it's one that's been going on for a while, grazing wheat pasture in the Southern Plains is another one out here in the Willamette Valley, we graze seed fields, mm -hmm. grass seed fields in the wintertime. So you have that kind of integration, but the idea that you would have, um, as you said, another crop planted at some time during the corn growing cycle so that when the corn was harvested, then this other, community of plants would be growing and could be grazed at some point and then go back into a crop or go from corn into another crop as a rotation. Um, but I've heard some other uh, things like strip tilling or sod um, cropping. But could you talk about what, what's meant by those? Uh, well, uh, maybe you meant strip tillage, or, or I mean, you said okay. strip tillage, but maybe you meant strip cropping. But uh, I'll, I'll try to address both. Uh, strip tillage is, is a mechanical form of disturbing the soil so that we can um, alleviate the the hard soil that uh, that is. We want to have loose soil so that roots can penetrate. And some soils in the southeastern U.S. tend to cement. We've and we, but it's because of our own actions. We've tilled the soil and so we've removed the organic matter. We've allowed our uh, uh, organic matter to be oxidized and so the soils become hard because of the lack of organic matter, because we disturb them. Anyway, so strip tillage is often used because we want to have good root penetration. Strip uh, cropping would be actually uh, using different uh, types of crops in the same field and that could be oftentimes with forages. Uh, let me just uh, uh, circumvent your your question here. That that, that uh, I because I think that that um, although I'm a scientist and I really believe that we should look for the data to tell us the story, um, there are we're all people. I have a perspective that and and there, and some of it is hypothesis, but others is actually experience in, from from the research that's been done by others as well as myself, and that is that perennial grass systems lead to higher organic matter. If we learn that, if we take that advice from our, from our evidence and apply it to normal cropping systems, we will have better soils. Our soils are in, in a degraded condition because we've allowed ourselves to think that we're only in it for short-term profits. The longer-term profits are also necessary. We need to keep our, our soil in good condition so that we have the potential to produce food in the future. Grass crops, although it takes, it seems like it takes um, land out of production, their forages are useful for various things. So we can use them. We can use them to our advantage. And so your question was really alluding to like, well, can we actually have these forages in our cropping systems? Yes, we can. And we need more of them. We need more perennial forages in our rotations too, so that we can have better soils in the end. Maybe not in our lifetime but in the lifetimes of those to come. That's, that's part of our, our stewardship that we have to have. Mm -hmm. It goes back to my grandparents. That mm -hmm. they, they, I knew that what they were about. They were about uh, producing food, but they were also stewards of the land. I believe it. Mm -hmm. And I know we can be too, and we need to, to show it. So we need more perennial forages in our crops, cropping systems. And we can do that. And, and I think it's, it's fair to say that we have technology, we have knowledge available to us that wasn't available to our grandparents. Um, and, and, and then we also need to think globally because soil degradation is a global issue that, you know, there are various projections about loss of arable land. One thing I'm certain of is we can't adapt to a lack of topsoil. We can arguably adapt to climate shifts, but without topsoil, game over. Um, and, and there is this paper I came across, uh, Grassroots of Soil Carbon Sequestration. So I, I, I like that. Um, 
I also, and again, back to the paper I mentioned earlier, that it was that cheap resource that led to the marginalization of pasture and a shift in production systems that took people away from pasture in ruminant animal agriculture production. And that's its ecological advantage that we can utilize those and we can be producing highest quality nutrition while improving soil health and enhancing the environment. So um, you mentioned in, in the, the grassroots paper, we've covered this supplying and cycling of nutrients for plant growth, but then that also plays in water quality because if they're cycling, they're not being lost. Uh, re receiving rainfall and storing water for root utilization. Remind me, please, there's, there's some rule of thumb about for every percent increase in soil organic matter, it equals an amount of water retention increase. Is, is yeah, I, I don't actually know the numbers because it actually, it, it depends on the soil texture. So, of you know, and, and, but uh, yeah, there's more organic matter in soil. If you can improve the organic matter of your topsoil, it's not only the water retention, but how much water actually goes into the soil. We have mm -hmm. too many fields where water is, uh, where precipitation occurs and an inch of rainfall occurs, but only a third of the, of that water gets into the soil. And that's, that, that, that's, a, that's, that's just like, well, it didn't hold that water, but actually it just never got into the soil. Anyway, so which also, means it, which also means it ran off the surface. That's right. Absolutely. Yep. And, and increased um, flooding, uh, yep. let alone right. um, uh, water quality, let alone soil erosion. Um, yep. Third point was filtering water passing through soil to support clean groundwater. Um, I remember some parts of southern Missouri where basically you mentioned could the soil physically hold up? Um, there are parts of the country where you just get these sinkholes that open up. Mm, um, mm -hmm. That's fairly dramatic, but just also, also that that the the filtration aspect of our soils, and then there's the whole question of 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 aquifer utilization and, and loss of that resource, but the quality of the resource. Right. Could, uh, could I just uh, add to that in that the, the, the just imagine we drink groundwater. Mm -hmm. We think that it, it's very pure and it is, it's really good to have good groundwater. So shallow aquifers that are, and that water comes from precipitation percolating through the soil. And if we call it dirt and treat it like dirt, then we, we often have dirty water. Mm. But we, but by having good grassland soils, it filters that water, that uh, water going through it, and that that soil cleans the water to give us fresh groundwater. Mm -hmm. It's an amazing fact. Uh, what's a xenobiotic? Well, something that the organisms in soil haven't seen. So the, the chemicals that we produce uh, in our industrial factories, or would apply as agricultural inputs. Uh, many of them would be considered uh, xenobiotics. Yeah, hmm. I, I remember the surprise I got the first time I heard somebody mention that uh, one of my instructors mentioned that soil organisms can treat herbicide molecules as a food source. Sure, I was like, "What? Yeah. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. of course." Um, yeah. But that this is the same guy that when he heard the the they were talking about a two by two band to side dress corn, yeah, okay, two inches over, two inches mm -hmm. down, and they were using liquid nitrogen, and I was going, wouldn't that freeze the roots? <laughs> uh, no, Pete, it's it's liquid nitrogen fertilizer, not right. liquid oh, okay. into right. yeah, got yeah. it, so, okay, yeah. Um, uh, I didn't have an extensive agricultural background when I started my training, <laughs> as you can tell. Um, okay. So I, so much of our conversations today devolve to either or. 
And the idea is, and in some cases, it's like you can take animal agriculture out of agriculture, like that you mm -hmm. can have sustainable food systems without animal agriculture. And I keep trying to suggest that, no, that animal agriculture and is, is thoroughly integrated into all agricultural systems. It's just looks different right? Different, different parts of the world. And going forward, I think it has to be more explicitly recognized that that's a reality for us. Um, the, the, the need to certainly protect, but arguably enhance our soil resources, because we have seen this degradation over time, over centuries across the face of the earth, different parts of the world have been at this a lot longer than we have. Um, and we have this emerging knowledge. So you're based in North Carolina, but you're working in many parts of this country with collaborators. And, and I think you're working with collaborators overseas. Is that correct? Sure. Yeah. Some, uh, you know, various uh, people within the region, particularly. Uh, but we have, you know, I'm in in Agriculture Research Service of USDA, so we have uh, locations across the country, and so obviously my colleagues are represented around the country, and uh, yes, uh, scientific colleagues are around the world too, uh, with our organizations like the American Forage and Grassland Council, uh, Soil Science Society America. Although it's it says America, it's actually an international organization too. We have the yeah, there are, there are um, many uh, opportunities to to collaborate around the world. Hmm. Are are there parts of are are there areas of the world where your perspective is that maybe they're further down the track of integrated livestock cropping systems or or their awareness amongst the agricultural community of these issues relating to soil health? Maybe they're more aware or places of interest. I would say that that it's not necessarily on a country basis. Um, I I believe that there are places in America there where people are aware of their surroundings. They are true ecologists. They understand that production can only occur if you have a sustainable use of your environmental resources. And so there are farmers in America that are good examples of of how. It should be done. Let's say, I mean, how should it be done? I don't know. That's for people to judge. But mm -hmm. I think that the any um, sustainable use of resources requires us to think about um, our environment as well as the production. So you you can't be sustainable if you don't produce enough food to you know sustain your 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 livelihood. So it's, mm -hmm. it goes both ways. Yeah, without, now, there, there are there are places I think in the world where you could find these same kinds of farmers that that are adopting these. But I would say that in general, just in general, not not uh, in general, the countries that still have integration, they might have not just had all of the technologies to adopt the the contemporary model, which is very recent of this industrial agriculture. And this industrial agriculture is a very recent model, and it doesn't mean that we have to have industrial agriculture. Yeah. We don't have to make those. We don't have to, have to follow the, that that model. We can make our own choices. Well, what would you put that as from post World War II or post 1970, or do you have a time frame on that sort of the the current paradigm as opposed to? Yeah, it was it was generally post World War II. Uh, all of the evidence, the the National Agricultural Statistics Service gives us the data to show show that post World War II, a lot of things changed, and there there was good you know there's good evidence why that occurred. The synthetic fertilizers occurred. We had agrochemicals that came on the market. Uh, we had this uh, policy push that wanted us to have cheap food uh, with a, a reduced labor. Uh, uh, Shortage, Lost. you know, and, then, mm -hmm. and and so and so labor became less and less a part of agriculture in the United States, and and of course the United States is a leader in 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 both production of natural resources. We were given a lot. That means that we have a, a large responsibility as well. Mm -hmm. we, we we shouldn't waste it. And, uh, and then of course you know all of the technology and the investments that have, have occurred. So we have been a leader, and the time is now for us to lead again. And, and create really, truly sustainable uh, agricultural systems. Mm -hmm.
we can do it. It's, but it may, it requires us as a country to make choices and as individuals to make choices. Mm-hmm. I think it, 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 at both of those levels. Yeah, uh, I, I'm tremendously optimistic. And as long as we recognize that individuals engaged in agriculture will have different goals based on where they are in their career, right? That somebody who's just starting out has different realities than somebody who's in their 60s. Um, uh, But overall, I think most people involved in agriculture will try to do the best that they know how. So education is essential, demonstration is essential um, to communicate these opportunities. And then where could people learn more about the work that you're doing, other resources that you would recommend to people who would want to learn more about the topic? Well, um, I, I'm, I'm a scientist. I, so I, I think in the, in the scientific realm. So we have, uh, you know, technical publications, of course. It's not for everybody to read uh, technical publications, although I, I see that uh, Mr. or Dr. Ballerstedt is has read a little bit uh, and so i think we could we could all read a little bit more um and, and try to get outside of our field and that's that's a really good thing i think you know that's part of of, of my general generalizable strategy too i'm not a specialist as such mm-hmm. and uh i you know i have a website but i i don't i wouldn't i think there are plenty of books there are uh, popular press the 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 younger population is more interested now uh uh, I think the information that they base it on has to be well founded. It's it's not uh, appropriate to say that um, you you should have, build soil health and then not tell me how you can build soil, soil health. You know there have to be fundamental scientific principles be, backing that up. And so I think um, information is freely available these days. And so we have to have good sources. I, I I'm not sure that I can lead you to any any one uh, good source though. But think think critically. If, if I might borrow a phrase of a, of a, a recent advertisement I heard, heard is is that let's see, you should um, uh, for my, I might forget it now. I should have written it down. But uh, you should you should um, um, <laughs> I, I've I've forgotten it. I'm sorry. But it, it is about it, it's about beer. You know, you should you should. Uh, you should uh, uh, argue or something. You should be, be with your friends and argue. Uh, anyway, make good decisions on your own. You know, you oh. think, uh, well, but, 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 but drink with others, okay? Drink with <laughs> others, but uh, think critically. Okay, fair enough. Um, Alan, thank you so much for your time. Our guest today has been um, Dr. Alan Franz Lubers, USDA professor, North Carolina State University, soil ecology and management. Um, full disclosure, you and I are collaborators in a couple um, organizations and some major efforts coming up um, with an international conference in 2023. Um, so it's, it's not like we haven't known each other for a while, but it's good to just have a conversation uh, about this topic because you should pardon the expression, soil is pretty foundational to everything else. Um, <laughs> Sorry, poor joke. Um, thank you. And if you don't have any questions for me, I'll let you get on. It's now past your supper time, so I'll I'll, I'll let you go. I'm good. Thank you so much, Peter. I appreciate it. But uh, I might ask you, you know, what, what? Why do you have interest in soil? What What brings you to the intention of soil? Do you have? Well, part of it was just my introduction to. Um, agriculture. I I got the opportunity, my very first class was to make a farm plan. Mm -hmm. And we then went out and, you know, how many cows, how many acres, soil tests, you know, what, what crops can you grow? Um, And, and the, the limit, the suitability of some soils for um, different crops was something that struck me very early. And, and then the knowledge that the only a very small portion of the land surface of the earth is suitable for cultivation to produce crops. And, and mm-hmm. that the, the trend is negative in terms of that, that 
whatever whatever climate shifts we're seeing, we're also seeing urbanization leading to a loss of productive soils. We're seeing soil degradation as a result of various practices. And one of the key advantages of forage-based ruminant animal agriculture systems is the, is the, the fundamental role that they play in soil health and the soil health principles of keeping a soil covered with growing plants, um, that we avoid tillage, that we um, keep, keep something growing in the soil for as long as possible. And, and all of those are fundamental, but we never emphasized them before. You know, it just happens to be, oh yeah, look, this is forage. It's sort of like looking at the cover crop species and realizing, oh, most of these are short-term, short-rotation forages. We just come up with a different name for them. Um, so all of that is is part of of what draws me to the topic. And and again, when I when I talk to people in other parts of the world and recognizing the challenges that they have with the soils in their part of the world, I again see this as as something that's transferable on a number of levels. Very good, yeah. Okay, well, it was a real, real pleasure, Peter. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to, to have been your guest. I'm honored, thanks. Thank you for joining us.